0: So welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast, I'm Victoria Brazel and today we're going to be talking about things that might be changing in healthcare and what impact that might have on us as health professions educators and our students who are trying to learn to survive and thrive in the healthcare environment. Uh, I'm going to be joined by Anne Summers-Hogg, and uh, as many of you would know, she's been faculty at Harvard Macy Institute Sessions, uh, but for her day job, she's a senior research fellow at the Christensen Institute, and here she focuses on business model innovation and disruption in healthcare, as the name would suggest, tribute to Clay Christensen, also, as we know, esteemed Uh, longtime faculty at the Harvard Macy Institute Leaders Program. Uh, And yes, I guess as as they would say, thinking about how to transform a sick care system to one that values and incentivizes total health. But before that, uh, she's been working for eight years at Atrium Health, uh, which is a large integrated delivery system in the Southeast. And she's gonna expand a little more on that for for us. Uh, But first of all, just how are you, Anne Summers?
1: I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm truly looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yes, I am as well. Well, this is tricky, isn't it? Uh, We know that healthcare is ever-changing. If the pandemic has taught us nothing, it certainly is that as well. Uh, But in the background, there's technology, there's changes in workforce, uh, people are getting much more sophisticated in thinking about the science of systems. So we're going to be talking about what you see on the horizon in terms of changes coming up. But why don't you tell us a little bit more, maybe add to my background. Tell us about where you've come from and what maybe informs your perspective.
1: Happy to. So my background is foundationally in training in both business and public health. So my perspective tends to connect those two foundations. I started my career in strategy consulting and I've now developed strategies on both the payer and the provider side of healthcare. And you mentioned the transformation from the sick care system to one that focuses on total health, and that's truly a passion of mine. I'm very passionate about prevention and helping people to optimize their lives. And I really see our greatest opportunity for this is within a system that does two things. First, it focuses on meeting consumers' needs and their jobs to be done. And it's one where incentives are aligned to enable business models to serve those jobs effectively. And I would say, in most ways today, our health system in the United States reflects neither of those components. So we have a lot of transformation work to do in order to truly create a system designed for optimizing total health.
0: Mm, Okay, that sounds like a uh, nice thing just to sort of pause you there, because I suppose some of us also look on from the outside to the American healthcare system, and even using words like payer. Uh, You know, because that's not something that some of our healthcare systems would embrace because we don't pay. Uh, Well, we pay, but it's different maybe to the kind of things you do. Uh, And yet that said, I don't know anyone's doing it right, are they, in the healthcare world?
1: That's an interesting question. So across, across the world, is anyone doing it right? I would say every country is doing some things right. And perhaps we have the greatest opportunity to learn from the best pieces of each model to identify what would work effectively across the board. Knowing that, you know, back to my comment around jobs to be done, that's the progress that someone seeks in a given situation. And across the world not everyone is in the same situation so we can't have one system that serves everyone because everyone's context is different
0: Mm, and i think that's one of the things that it's easy to lose sight of as a health professional is that you do work in a system and that system exists within a national context as well all right but i interrupted tell us more about your journey and how you got to be thinking about these things
1: Sure. So I did start my career in strategy consulting. I worked for Oliver Wyman, which is a global management and strategy consulting firm. In my time with them, I focused on developing value-based care models for payers. And that was about a decade ago. And in the United States at that time, those were the days of the patient-centered medical home and the newly minted Accountable Care Organization or ACOs. And it's funny now that a decade later, we're still talking about the transition to value-based care. And for those who have been in healthcare longer than I have, they're probably laughing and saying, oh, it's only been a decade. We've been talking about this for multiple decades. So it is interesting to continue to see the evolution to value-based care in the United States. When I joined Atrium Health, I actually started my work there in our innovation engine, focused on the provider side of value-based care and designing and testing potentially disruptive models of primary and on-demand care. And after my days in the innovation engine, I worked for our chief strategy and transformation officer, most recently serving as the AVP of strategy and transformation. And in that role, I co-developed our organization's long-term enterprise strategy, so thinking about where do we need to be in 2025, why, and how do we get there? And most recently, I joined the Christensen Institute, and you shared a little bit about that
0: work. Mm, Well that is very exciting and so just thinking back to Atrium and you're talking about provider side reform so this is things like the minute clinics where people uh, different healthcare providers might undertake roles that they don't traditionally have and in uh models of care that maybe are unfamiliar and not necessarily everybody going to my kind of shop, which is a big emergency department, for something that um, might be more simply solved by a single provider in a much simpler setup. Is that right?
1: Yes, and even new entrants to the market since Minute Clinic. So the solutions that you can access your on-demand care on your cell phone, whether it's Mm -hmm. through an AI-enabled chatbot or a virtual visit with your provider, it seems these days the opportunities are almost endless.
0: Yeah, so it's exciting times, but also times that many who've, been brought up in a more traditional approach like me uh, you know can be fearful of because these seem like uh, we feel like threats to quality we feel like threats to our own jobs so this is definitely disruptive well why don't we think about now looking ahead to what's going to happen in 2025 and beyond Uh, and there's no doubt if I were to touch on a couple of things maybe that have come up to here as you say there's much going on in workforce reform i think we certainly have seen technology transform the kind of work even say i do in the emergency department the number of people that have medical imaging now and that helps some it doesn't help others and in fact it harms a few as well so any of these trends are going to have uh you know a little bit of a confidence interval around what we hope might happen as it were but why don't you just tell us what do you think what are some things we should be watching
1: Oh, I feel as though I could talk about this for hours, but no one would want to listen to all of that talking. So I'll try to focus it on somewhere between three and five items, and we'll see where we land. At first, I want to make a note about your comment. It's it's apt, and yes, there are always unintended consequences. We often forecast the trends in a positive light without thinking about what the rule of unintended consequences associated with them is. So to start off, I would say one trend that I hope we will see come to fruition or at least grow in its prevalence by 2025 is a rise in what I'll call personalized prevention. So as the cost of understanding our individual genome continues to fall, there's a great opportunity to really leverage that knowledge to help people live healthier lives. So limiting their disease burden through better understanding of what they as an individual uh, are at risk of contracting. So whether that's an autoimmune condition, such as celiac or diabetes or something like that, breast cancer, where, where can we identify based on their individual genome, what may be coming for them in the future and how can we proactively provide care to better their life today and tomorrow, so mm. that we are preventing future problems, helping them to optimize their life today, as opposed to treating a problem down the line that truly we could have prevented.
0: Mm. And this, um, this is sort of a combination of, let's say you do know that your genome sets you up for diabetes, uh, can you start managing your weight and activity and lifestyle uh, because you know it's coming as opposed to waiting until it does?
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I do think back to your comment around unintended consequences, a challenge here will be the ubiquity of data and also both the provider understanding and workflow to address it.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: in our healthcare system now, our current resources, processes, and priorities aren't set up to address personalized prevention at scale. That's not the care model we have in place. So in order for this to see the light of day, it will either need to be through a disruptive new entrant who has an innovative care model with the appropriate enabling technology, or incumbent organizations will need to vastly reorganize their resources, processes, and priorities to bring it to life.
0: Mm -hmm. So just make that really tangible for me. Can we take the diabetes example as well? What you're saying is you might have a little you've got a GP and they've got uh, 10 minutes to chat to you and they've got a little information sheet about weight loss whereas that might not be actually granular enough for this particular individual and their risk is that right they might need some specific things in relation to the kind of actions they would take and the follow-up that they would get and the tracking that they would have and support they would get to try and uh, engage in these behaviors is that right
1: Exactly. And so if I build off of that example, let's say you go to your GP or your primary care provider, and they have done a DNA fit swab. If listeners aren't familiar with the company DNA fit, uh, you're nodding. So I'm guessing you've heard of them, check them out. But let's say you did this DNA fit swab, you know, your genome, where your likely fault lines are. And your GP can tell you this, but they don't have the time and aren't going to be appropriately reimbursed for spending time with you to talk about lifestyle modification, behavior change, etc. And this is where a different resource and a different process would actually serve both you the patient and the provider better than that provider spending their time explaining it to you. And that resource might be a health coach. So that is a much lower cost resource. And also, likely in this situation, a much more appropriate one, because they have probably been trained in nutrition and physical activity. Many health coaches tend to be either completely non-licensed or non-credentialed individuals, or oftentimes they're registered dietitians, or perhaps personal trainers. So that may be, in fact, a much better fit and a better avenue to get that individual the guidance that they need.
0: Mm, this is so interesting well let's think about them projecting this into the world of health professions education so we might have traditionally seen this as someone who I'm going to take medicine because that's the one I'm most familiar with we train up our doctor and while they're doing their undergraduate training they learn about preventive health at least at some notional sense Uh, maybe some better programs have some Uh, general practice or family medicine rotations and as part of that they might learn some skills in things that we would have called motivational interviewing or brief interventions Uh, but then they move into a system which doesn't really support them spending that time in it and what you're saying is now we might be training them to train other providers like health coaches and that might be what a doctor does which is actually train health coaches to provide this at scale or inform health coaches about what they should be doing but not actually do some of that work instead which is pretty confronting stuff
1: yes and and i do believe that is one avenue the providers could train the health coaches i think another could simply be a collaboration model so really surrounding the individual with a care team that includes a health coach and a provider, this is actually something Iora Health in the United States says is their, their motto is actually that the health coach is king and they manage a lot of older Medicare Advantage patients with chronic conditions. And those individuals have a really tight-knit relationship with their health coach who really does a lot of their day-to-day management. For example, some of the things you and I were speaking about earlier, and it's not incumbent on the providers to do the training for the health coaches, but instead to collaborate with them, to communicate with them effectively, and really to be their partner in in caring for their panel of patients. So I would say from an education perspective, it. Maybe, and this probably goes back to my foundation in business, but in my undergraduate business curriculum, almost everything was done in group work, right? It was no longer about being an individual contributor, but group work, because in business, you have to work on teams almost all the time. And perhaps an implication for our medical education is more group work and more collaborative work, as opposed to individual examinations. And I'm not a healthcare educator, and I have not been through medical school. So perhaps that is already how much of it is organized, but I could see that being more of a cornerstone.
0: Mm, Yes. And before we leave this example, Anne Summers, I can already hear people saying, yeah, health coach, you mean like goop. Uh, I mean, it does surely also mean that it brings with it some sense of regulation around what people do because just as doctors have been criticised for trying to sell pills and, and sick solutions, um, these health coaches might be trying to also sell various other adjuncts that may or may not be useful. They may not have the regulatory arrangements and, or professional uh, values about evidence-based interventions. Uh, it sort of brings with it a slew of new problems even if it starts to solve some old ones.
1: That's, that's an excellent point. And I think I would tie it back to what I said about at the start around what's really going to make an effective system is one that focuses on understanding and serving the individual's job to be done. And for a long time in health behavior we made the assumption that, oh, people just need to be educated. People need to be educated to eat better food or to get more exercise. And in some cases, that may have been part of the problem. But at the end of the day, people don't just lack education. There's something else in the context of their lives, perhaps a social determinant of health that is inhibiting them from making that choice. And that's where the health coach really has not only the empathy building skills and Uh, the time (laughs) to really get to know the individual in their context and their desired progress, but can work with them on perhaps what is the behavior change or the environmental change or the contextual change that needs to occur in order for them to not only engage in the healthier behavior, but to have the improved health outcome and really the progress that they want. Mm. So I think it's less about pushing a specific solution and more about understanding the individual and what is going to help them optimize their lives and their health in the process of that
0: yes and that sounds like a little bit more deep work than just saying stop smoking all right so i like this idea personalized preventive health care thinking about using your genome to predict what might be coming and then using different models of uh, approaches to trying to um, both prevent and support you know healthy lives Uh, so that sounds like a good one more. Tell me more.
1: Okay, I think a second one I would choose would be that we will continue to see the enhancement of behavioral health offerings. And this is not a new trend. But there are a few things that really put it at the top of my list. First, the obvious presence of COVID-19 has increased acknowledgement of behavioral health issues. The social isolation, the depression, the anxiety, the burnout, and more behavioral health issues skyrocketed amidst the pandemic. And this put additional pressure on an already strained behavioral health system in the United States. And nature hates a void. And over the past few years, we've seen the number of behavioral health startups skyrocket. There was already a problem. COVID-19 brought additional focus and light to that problem. And these startups are predominantly digital in nature, which enhances access in many ways. So that's my third factor that would put this at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. And the reason digital health, behavioral health solutions enhance access, it does it In a way, in-person solutions cannot because, well, for a number of reasons. One, oftentimes people don't want to access an in-person behavioral health solution because of the stigma associated with it. It's a lot harder to tell your boss you need to take time away from work to go see your therapist than it is to see your therapist on your phone during your lunch hour
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right yeah and
1: then it can be more of a private less stigmatized approach
0: Mm, and more on demand because sometimes you don't know when you're going to need some support uh whereas things like your calm app or your headspace app might be something you can access on a regular basis but also potentially for a specific issue And Calm was the number one app, wasn't it? These are the sort of things that you're talking about as well, not just uh, virtual visits, but also, as you say, automated things that don't require the physical presence of a healthcare provider.
1: Yes. And actually, in the first three quarters of this year, in the United States, mental health was the top funded digital therapeutic. Over $3 billion, I think it was $3.1 billion were raised in the first three quarters of 2021.
0: Yeah. And we can talk about many, many reasons why there is a mental health uh, crisis. But I guess thinking about what those interventions are going to be. So, again, trying to think about this from the point of view of health professions, educators. Once again, it means still some foundational training in uh, what is the essence of mental health issues? What creates mental health wellness as opposed to illness? uh, What interventions are useful? But people may well be prescribing, as it were, uh, use of things like apps or other interventions, but it also might mean that providers like psychologists have got a whole range of ways of interacting with individuals other than a traditional come into my clinic and we'll talk through your problems. Is that right?
1: Yes, I I would say so. The one additional component about this trend that I'll mention is the space is getting increasingly crowded. So because nature hates a void and lots of startups have rushed to the market with their solution, we're going to continue to see consolidation amongst these players. Last month, Headspace and Ginger announced their combination. So that's one example where we're seeing it. And I think we're also going to see organizations continue to seek to differentiate themselves by offering additional services for more complex behavioral health issues, because a lot of these digital health, mental health solutions started by focusing on depression or by focusing on anxiety or teaching you how to meditate. They had point solutions and we're now seeing models expand and really focus on more complex issues. I think Also this fall, Lyra Health announced that they will be expanding into both alcohol use disorder and into suicide. So that's just one example of an established digital health therapeutic out there that is truly trying to expand and and offer services across more of the behavioral health spectrum.
0: Mm. And once again, this is super interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, we can see this happening for anxiety mood disorders but once you start getting into those sorts of things like um, suicidality uh, eating disorders traditionally would have thought hang on these are really complicated things you can't just offload that to an app but maybe we're seriously underestimating uh, how those products might evolve and the other thing I suppose that you're saying is that it might be that the business models for how these are presented to people, it won't just be download the app and you self-serve, but actually how they are integrated into more of a care package might be evolving as well. Is that right?
1: Yes. And for many of the solutions they are, such as Lyra Health, it, it's a virtual interaction with a therapist or a social worker. I think it de- it may depend what level of behavioral health provider you have dependent on the severity of the problem you're seeking care for. But while some solutions that are focused on, let me teach you how to meditate, meditate, maybe pre recorded things that you listen to, or those may be more AI based, many of these solutions are actual interfaces with therapists, just, it happens to be virtual.
0: Yeah, because I imagine at some level, I don't know, do you that does the FDA have to license these apps if they are offering uh, sort of treatment? Because uh, I know that they do have to um, approve some other apps that, for instance, offer drug doses for pediatric critical care calculations and other things. So uh, once again, I guess there's it's going to raise questions about quality and about safety, isn't it?
1: Yes. And th- that's a great question. I don't believe that the FDA has to approve the apps. That could be wrong. I'm not. Uh, very knowledgeable about the regulatory side but I do know that the therapists have to be licensed in the state where you're receiving care Mm, so I live in Virginia so if I were seeking care from a Lyra therapist I would only be able to receive care from one who is licensed to practice in Virginia Mm -hmm. even though they may be in Pennsylvania or Florida or somewhere else
0: Mm. all right well that's uh, suggestion number two uh, mental and behavioral health uh, interventions that come closer to us. All right, yes. keep, it, keep it up. What more?
1: Okay, I think the third one I'll actually build on the last point I was making around behavioral health solutions, and we'll see more consolidation across the digital health landscape, regardless of where any given model focuses their service. And I really think that winning organizations in the long run are going to be the aggregators who create a consolidated platform of offerings for employers or consumers instead of our current marketplace that is dominated by various point solutions. So having too many point solutions are difficult for both employers and consumers to manage. And we actually know from consumer behavior, if we look at, I'll take a finance example. If we look at research around retirement fund enrollment. When people have too many choices, they don't make a choice at all, and their investments suffer. And the behavior around disease management is the same. If there are too many choices for how you can manage your diabetes, you won't make one at all, and your health outcomes will suffer. And this is where really understanding the consumer behavior and the consumer's job to be done or their desired progress can inform really the ideal business model. And if you're the employer, you also don't want to offer your employee 14 different point solutions. One is the employer. That's a lot of relationships for you to manage. And as an employee, it's too many things to choose from. You'll be overwhelmed and like the retirement fund, you you will choose nothing.
0: Well, I guess I could take another example there. It's a bit like Expedia, isn't it, or lastminute.com. You just want to go on there and see what's happening and have three or four options of how you're going to fly to Los Angeles uh, rather than to be going to each particular airline's website or each hotel's website. You want the packages presented to you. Is that, Have I got that similar?
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly the same. I, that's a, another good example. I'll have to save that one for later. <laughs> Some of my old colleagues at Atrium Health always made fun of me for always using finance examples. I blame it on the fact that my husband works in finance, and so I (laughs) I learned lots of those examples. But it does there are often corollaries between finance consumer behavior and health consumer behavior.
0: Yeah, surprise, surprise. Human humans are human. Yeah. Well, I guess again taking this into then health professions education. I'm going to sort of draw a slightly different bow here because I think what you're starting to describe is that healthcare professionals are going to have much closer relationships with uh, health organisations as opposed to direct relationships with um, patients or healthcare consumers because what you're talking about here is uh, healthcare providers working within systems that then offer offer integrated solutions to the people who need them, patients, some would call them, consumers, others would call them, Uh, rather than just setting up a shingle and saying, I will take people that come in who are sick and I'll treat them. You're saying uh, healthcare professionals are contributing to organizations that are trying to uh, maintain health.
1: The patient-provider relationship, I believe, is foundational to care outcomes because that's where trust is established. As a patient or a consumer, I don't necessarily trust any given healthcare system until I trust a doctor or a nurse or someone who I've interacted with at that healthcare system who's provided care to me. So I'm not attempting to say that I don't believe going forward that patient provider relationship will be important. I think it is of paramount importance because trust is, is foundational to improving health. So what I was more so trying to say was in terms of the types of models that are out there, when there are too many options to choose from, the consumer will be paralyzed. So I think from a marketplace standpoint, we'll continue to see consolidation among the various digital health offerings that are out there. And the organizations that really aggregate a number of different offerings, one example that I've seen of late is Transparent. I believe they will really be a leader in the space because they understand the employer's job to be done of not having 14 different offerings for their employees and also the They understand the employee's job to be done, which is I have these three chronic conditions and I don't want three different apps or three different providers to help manage that solution. I want one and I want a really seamless experience to try and identify who or what service I should hire to get my manage my three chronic conditions job done.
0: It's quite interesting, isn't it? So I think you used the word aggregators before, and that sounds like a good one. People who are trying to you know, integrate the solutions, present it to consumers, but still have the healthcare providers then with the primary relationships with those uh, consumers. One of the things that we talked about even before this is what kind of organisations are going to be the leaders in capitalising on these sorts of things. And I'm going to probably push your answer to this a little bit hard because... Within the US healthcare system, I get the sense you've already got these organizations, everything from Kaiser to now a whole range of uh, other entrants who maybe were at one point, I think, called health maintenance organizations. But essentially, you sign up to the organization and they help to provide these solutions. Uh, Where do you sit if you live in a country like mine, where traditionally the government has been the people who has done the kind of uh, built-in offerings that you talk about? Are are governments up to that, or does it have to be a uh, healthcare organizations, like you're saying, that do have some incentive to survive in a market? Okay.
1: So in terms of who is going to lead, with personalized prevention, it's early to know, but the leaders in this space are going to develop business models or alter their existing business models so that they have aligned incentives with the associated resources and processes that not only allow providers and their care teams to incorporate personalized prevention in their approach to care, but that incentivize it. And early movers in this space in the United States right now are at the top of the market. They're functional medicine-based practices with a concierge component. So these are not broadly available to the mass population. These are targeting likely in many ways, the worried well who are very focused on their health and can afford to pay for this type of solution. Ideally, if we had a system that was focused more on prevention than on managing sick care, It would benefit the government to pay for this type of model because we know that up to 90% of our health outcomes are based on our genes, our environment, and our health behaviors. Only 10% of our health is really attributable to medical care. But in the United States, our spending is flipped. We spend almost 90% on medical and clinical treatment and very little on prevention. So, a government could be a predominant payer, but we would need a predominant payer of prevention, but we would all need to be functioning in a very different system.
0: Well, you're not alone there. Um, Can I ask then about that? Because the examples we've given so far definitely are probably at the the preventive end, as you say, because that probably is where the return on investment is. But as we know, the death rate has remained unchanged. It's still one per person. So everybody does have a point at the end of their life where they're sick uh, and all the, um, despite the preventive efforts, all the chickens come home to roost, as it were. And the people that come into my emergency department are elderly. They've got... 25 different medications they're on. They've got 10 chronic medical conditions. Most of them are playing into this presentation. That's something like weak and dizzy. It doesn't fit into a nice little uh, easy to fix kind of issue. And how does How is care going to change for that group of people, do you think? Have you got any inspiration for us?
1: Excellent question. As we invest more in prevention and on focusing on what is it the individual is looking to accomplish in seeking health and care services that we would not just create more years in life, right? To your point, we we all have an end point. We would not just create more years in life, but we would create more life in those years. So by focusing on prevention and helping people have more healthy days, we are really helping them have better lives. Mm -hmm. For everyone, that might not be a longer life, Mm -hmm. right? At some point, we decided that success was living to a certain number. But again, I would argue it's not about more years in life, but more life in those years.
0: I think that is a very admirable aim uh, that does involve us also. And I'm interested in your thoughts on this having perhaps a bit more sophisticated approach to uh, end-of-life care as well. Uh, patients and consumers often don't want what caregivers are pushing on them at the end of life. Uh, it's expensive, as we know, you know you know the stats, I'm sure, better than any of us about most of our healthcare expenditure going on that last six months of life. Um, I don't know if that was in any of your trends to watch, but certainly I feel like it has been in my practice career.
1: That's an excellent point. And, and yes, it gets back to you know, my comment around somewhere we decided success was extending life for as long as possible, but end-of-life care is only optimized if we understand people's goals, if we understand their jobs to be done for those last days of their lives. And if I think back to your your comment around the individual coming into the ER and they have, you know, 25 different medications, that's somewhere... That if I think about what really needs to change in terms of how we educate health professionals going forward, at least, and I can't speak for other countries, but I know in the United States, less than 20% of medical schools require students to take a nutrition course. And most med schools teach less than 25 hours of nutrition over those four years. And I'm not saying medications are are bad. Medications are life-saving and we should absolutely prescribe them when needed.
0: All right. Well, as we start to kind of close this out, I'm interested in, uh, I guess, one thing, and that is wild cards. I used that in our run sheet that I sent you. Is there some things that might happen that maybe aren't likely, but which would totally change everything, like, hey, a pandemic? So I don't know if there's something else you can see on the horizon, or if you just wanted to speak to how you think the pandemic is going to leave lasting impacts on healthcare.
1: I'll, I'll try to hit both of them. So I think the biggest wild card in the United States right now would be policy change. Most people don't expect much healthcare policy change in the US right now with our current administration and how the government is divided, but a wild card could be if there is a big policy shift, whenever there's an expectation and reality becomes the opposite. That always creates a lot of ripple effects and un- unintended consequences because you were expecting one thing and the total opposite happened. So I would say policy change could be one big wild card. In terms of lasting impacts from the pandemic, sites of care will no longer be predominantly bricks and mortar. So obviously, when the pandemic hit in 2020, we saw a huge increase in virtual care here in the United States. And in April of 2020, I think it was around 13% of claims were from telehealth and in april of this year it was around five percent but pre-pandemic it was 0.2 percent so we're not at the peak we were in april of 2020 but we also haven't returned to the baseline and i don't believe we will Mm -hmm. because consumer behavior has been altered And the industry will need to adapt to ensure that virtual and digital care become an integrated component of the care continuum. It's not either or. It's not in-person or virtual or in-home care. It's in-home care and virtual care and picking up the phone when it's appropriate and in-facility care. It's not an either or. It's a both end because care is care. And the modality or the channel through which you deliver the care is not the care in and of itself.
0: Yeah, and I think that's very interesting. And I think what it took, certainly in our country, was for methods of remuneration to catch up. Uh, but we were fortunate, and I suspect you as well, to have some great role models in uh, rural healthcare delivery where people were doing some of this. So it wasn't certainly a lack of the technology, it was a lack of the care models, as you say, to have evolved. All right. Well, I guess um, I know most of the people listening to this aren't researchers in health policy uh, or health service delivery, but most of them are involved in health professions education. I think we've stepped through some of the ways these are going to play out. So maybe one last question is, if you are a humble medical educator or you work in a nursing school or if you are a physio um, clinician educator... How do you look out for what's on the horizon and start to think about evolving your training towards that? how do How does one keep up to date with what's emerging and filter out um, the noise from the signal without having another great podcast with ann summers
1: <laughs> well it's it's an excellent question, and I will start by saying I have immense respect for are health professions educators. And while I am not one, I am related to one. My sister is a nursing school professor, and I know how challenging the work is and also how essential it is to train our caregivers of the future. So I'll qualify that this is certainly an outsider's perspective. And the first thing I would say, excuse me, in terms of adapting programs to produce 21st century educators or practitioners is something that I learned in my days in innovation, which is that everything starts with empathy. It's the foundation of design thinking, and we really need to build more empathy development into our training. Every provider I have ever met is a caring person. It's why they became a healthcare provider in the first place. They did it to help other people. But our system right now, our processes for delivering care aren't always optimized to lead with empathy. We've heard over and over about the barrier that the EMR creates because our providers have to look more at a screen than they look at the eyes of the patient to whom they are providing care. There's a way to improve the environment and alongside that, embedding Design thinking and leading with empathy training into more professional education programs would be beneficial. Here in the United States, Jefferson Health is really a leader in this. They have a design lab, and they've actually integrated their medical school with a design school. I believe they're they're a fascinating model if folks aren't familiar with them.
0: Yes, I. Um, this is Bonku that you're talking about. Yes, Yes, exactly. I I went to visit them actually. And I even went out into there. So it's set up in an old bank vault. It's very cool and funky, the innovation lab. I have actually been there. This is in Philadelphia. And um, as you say, they've done quite a few design things where they've built different pieces of equipment to optimize care delivery. And they just, a lot of them just seem so sensible. Uh, But they've also obviously branched into thinking about um, other methods. And as you say, they they definitely use this design thinking framework as a way of um, thinking about that empathy that you're talking about. How interesting. I did not expect you to say that in the answer, but it seems a very good answer to me.
1: Yeah, That that would be one. I'd also say, we spoke about this a little earlier, but the nutrition component that needs to be much more ubiquitous across medical education. The Less than 20% of med schools teaching fewer than 25 hours is not sustainable to create A healthy future for for anyone and I would also say for far too long we've treated behavioral health and physical health as separate despite the fact that our heads are in fact connected to our bodies Mm -hmm. and we know that individuals who suffer from behavioral health issues are much more likely to have out of control chronic conditions whether that be diabetes hypertension etc so ensuring that while an individual provider may not be an expert in every single body system, that we are teaching an integrated approach, a collaborative approach where care teams are the norm and not the exception, where we care for an individual as a care team unit and not just an individual provider.
0: Mm, absolutely. And to your point, uh, actually, we know that the, your gut microbiome also seems to profoundly affect your mental health and certainly some of the work on depression. So yet another reason this is a bidirectional uh, impact as well. Well, Anne summers this has just been the most fascinating conversation. I think for those of us involved in health professions education, it's a timely look at some trends that we might be seeing, what that means for our education and training, and indeed what that means for us as healthcare consumers as well. Um, all the best for your work at the Christensen Institute. I'm sure we're going to continue to see the fruits of that uh, at the Harvard Macy Institute and uh, look forward to your contributions there and elsewhere. But thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun, and I do so appreciate you waking up early to have the conversation.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Well, thank you. All right. You. Well, uh, this is Victoria Brazel signing off for the Harvard Macy Institute podcast.